When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. You're listening to episode 234 of TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. I'm Leslie Goldberg, the West Coast TV editor, and I'm joined as always by the great Dan Feinberg, the Hollywood Reporter's chief TV critic. How's it going, Chief? Oh, it goes. Are are you recovered from the end of the baseball postseason? There was a baseball season. Okay, that I just if you if you had any Please. ranting that Please. you wanted to do, Please. fire Dave Roberts, replace Andrew Friedman. Gotta go. They both gotta go. It's not Dave Roberts's fault. <laughs> I mean, Ryan Pepio should have started Game Three instead of Lance. I like to give up home run balls, Lynn. Look. If they'd if they'd had if they'd pulled Lance Lynn after three innings and he and it was nothing nothing you'd have thought it was brilliant so definitely he yeah, left him I in would for, have he would have he he left him I in would have pulled him after the second bomb I, that is entirely four home runs in an inning and Roberts left him in there go oh I thought he could you know could finish the inning and get one more out you know what <laughs> he Roberts dug himself a, his own grave to me because he said he he literally told one of the sideline reporters uh, during Game Three that he was saving Ryan Pepio for game four to piggyback with if Clayton Kershaw couldn't go deep in the game. But you have to get to game four, and they clearly didn't. So Pepio didn't even pitch at all this series. Like, one of our best young arms didn't throw at all. He had the fourth lowest earn run average since he was called up in, in August in, in, the, in the majors. Fourth lowest, and he didn't pitch at all. Sure. That is, st- that is still sense. that is one that is one problem within a series in which there yeah, were they many didn't hit problems. the starting pitching was terrible only the bullpen was good and usually the bullpen's my biggest problem but the, the starting again. pitching was non-existent and that was unfortunately yeah, that was just how they reached the postseason there was absolutely yeah. nothing they could do so I, I I almost went I had I was offered tickets for for game one but I was in Vegas for you too and I honestly like I don't know that I could have sat there and watched Kirsch get the shit beaten out of him worst start of his entire career and we don't know if he's coming back yet he's he's my guy so that's my my heart goes out to him and he goes in and it goes out to the rest of the dodger fans and everyone and and i guess the players although they can go cry into all their big giant bank accounts but yeah it's just it's it's a bummer it's not not that i'm surprised because once you saw the state of our rotation heading into the playoffs it was just you kind of knew not to have big expectations. So. Unless you were Bill Plaschke, in which case, in which case you guaranteed a World Ch- Series championship for these Dodgers. Which I was mean, the a- parallels <laughs> with '88 were there, and I and I always believe that baseball is magic, and things like that are, are can be meant to happen and all. But yeah, the parallels you know, with '88. They had there Oral Hershiser having the, one of the best seasons in modern baseball history that season. They had one of the best starting pitchers ever. 
in that home stretch of that season. So they always had that going for them, whereas this team had no pitching or had no starters. So I mean, Kershaw was the only person left from the start of the rotation from the rotation in uh, at the start of the season. Savage, just absolutely savage. And obviously no one could have foreseen that Tony Gonsolin and Dustin May would go out or that Walker Bueller wouldn't be ready. I mean, most people figured Bueller wouldn't be ready and he would just be a bullpen presence or a long innings guy or a middle reliever. But still, like, you know, the big deadline move was Lance Lynn. And then you got this this other guy from Kansas City. What's his name? Ryan something or other, who was good for us down the stretch. And then he was l- completely left off the, the playoff roster. What? Like, what did we need Colton Wong on the roster for? Like, stick your pitching on there. You have no starting rotation. Like, you need extra pitchers. You don't need some washed-up has-been off the bench. But congratulations, he walked in the ninth to bring the time run to the plate. And honestly, it could have been a tie game if Chris Taylor, you know, hit that ball in any other stadium except for Arizona. 400-plus feet. That, that, that ball's a home run in, in a couple other parks, so. It is. It is. Nope. Uh, anyway, that anyway. has been that has been four minutes. Of... You got me started on this, Dan. This is entirely your fault. Oh, completely my fault. I just figured that if you had something to get out of your system, I, I wanted to allow you to. And also now you're going to have so much more time to watch TV in the weeks to come. So, yay. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I will <laughs> That has been four minutes of Leslie being unhappy about the end of the baseball season. We're either sorry or you're welcome, depending on your perspective. (laughs) Yeah, but we have some good news after you just sat through four minutes of me talking about baseball. Headlines are back, so we're going to start there. Number one. Leading off with headlines, this just in from New York Comic Con, Melissa McBride is returning to the world of The Walking Dead and has signed on as a series regular for season two of spinoff Daryl Dixon, the Norman Reedus-led spinoff that she was originally poised to star in. Her first appearance will be in the October 15th season one finale of Daryl Dixon. So Carol and Daryl back at it again. To be fair, she makes an audio cameo sooner than that, Uh, but... Yeah, I. You've been watching, Dan. I watched also. I I, re- I reviewed it on a uh, podcast that I uh, co-host each week with uh, Leslie Goldberg from the Hollywood Reporter, and uh, I talked extensively about how much I liked uh, Walking Dead, Daryl Dixon. But what I liked about it was how separate it was, and I really felt like the attempt to shoehorn Melissa McBride's character back into the world was. Easily my least favorite part of these six episodes. I know that the fans love her. I know that the fans love the dynamic between them, etc., etc. But what I liked about this was that it felt like a different show and it felt like a different world. And the more you bring back the world that we already knew that I was already fairly sick of, the less interest I have in this new world. So that is that is my feeling on this but i also understand that i am not part of the core fan base that will be very happy about this and that it is the responsibility of the franchise to make the core fan base and not random tv critics happy totally fair Anyway, the sixth and final season of The Crown will be split up into two parts at Netflix, uh, with the first four parts dropping on November 16th and the last six parts concluding the series four weeks later on December 14th. You might remember that this is a somewhat similar strategy to the strategy that Netflix has employed on shows like Stranger Things, You, and The Witcher. So several random people who I saw on Twitter who are actually 
industry observers who thought it was strange that this was something Netflix was doing. It's not actually something strange Netflix is doing. It's entirely logical. Um, it's still a confusing way to watch the <laughs> the show. And uh, when I throw in comparisons involving Stranger Things, it kind of makes me worry a little bit that some of the last few episodes might be two and a half hours long. So let's hope that's not the case. But you can also... Probably just a guess here that attributes some of this to the strikes because there is obviously we know and we've spoken about a content slowdown here. So, yeah, this is a way of, of getting some of their biggest hits, some of Netflix's biggest hits to last in, in the conversation for more than a week. Right. I mean, we've talked about that so many times. Right. The, you know, will Netflix ever come off of the binge model? And it, it's. With each passing month, it does feel like they are getting farther and farther away from that. Although it, it does obviously work for some shows, but I think, you know, usually what we've seen is show some of their bigger hits will be spread out over two quarters. This is obviously the same quarter, but it is a way to continue the narrative through Thanksgiving and into the holidays. And we encourage Netflix to do whatever fun things they want to do to mix up their format because it's a fluid environment. Yep. And wrapping up headlines, Fox has canceled Welcome to Flatch after two seasons, with the move coming after the network no longer needed the show on its schedule after the nearly 150-day-long writer's strike. You know, look, we've talked on the show before that the longer that the strikes went on, and we'll have more of that in a minute, the less the broadcast networks would need to bring back bubble shows like Flatch and the also-canceled Home Economics at ABC. Speaking of ABC, still to be determined is the future of the rookie feds. But basically, it's the longer the strikes go on, you don't need your bubble programming to, to fill in the gaps before you can get back to the stuff that's already either in the can or production up and running, etc. So Fox, we know, has a big roster of unscripted titles as well as animated series in the can. Little need for a show like Welcome to Flash on the schedule. And if you wish to hear more of Leslie's analysis of some of the cancellations that took place during the strike and why some of those were happening and what the logistics were behind returning to production and all of the various things that Leslie has talked about rather brilliantly in recent weeks, check out last week's episode for the exhaustive list of shows canceled during the strike and basically check out every week for Leslie talking about when things will be back to normal, which brings us to our second topic. Number two. Oh, yeah. We're back to the strike zone again. And I don't know. I feel like last, last week and maybe the week before, we were a little bit on the positive side and we were a little bit on the, you know, the pulse of the room. It's feeling like the, the SAG after strike might be heading towards a quick resolution. And, you know, the great thing about this situation, a little bit like Netflix scheduling, is that it is fluid and it could turn out that by the time this drops, We'll be feeling much more positive about things. But as of whatever time this is, mid-afternoon on Thursday, things got a little bumpy in the conversations with the AMPTP and SAG-AFTRA. Leslie, break it down. Yeah, things are not looking very good. Here's what we do know. On day 90 of the performers' strike, negotiations between the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers and SAG-AFTRA, the union that represents performers, talks collapsed this week with Hollywood's studios and streamers saying the gap between both sides is, quote, too great. Talks have been suspended. There are no currently scheduled negotiations 
on the books between the Performers Union and the AMPTP. Everything happened late Wednesday night and into Thursday morning here in Southern California. SAG-AFTRA has said the studios intentionally misrepresented to the press the cost of the October 11th proposal and overstated it by 60%. That was something that SAG told union members, quote, they have done the same with AI claiming to protect performer uh, consent, but continuing to demand consent on the first day of employment for use of a performer's digital replica for an entire cinematic universe or any franchise product. So, or excuse me, for any franchise project. So what this means, well, broadcast season is now officially back in jeopardy. Dan, you know, we said we talked about this last week and, and I went out on a limb and I said I would anticipate that the strike would be, the performer strike would be resolved either the, by the end of this week or early next. I'm going to go ahead and select all and delete and hit that right to the trash because yeah, this does not look good where you've got, a, you know, we've seen, and look, we've seen this playbook before. This is something that the AMPTP did in August when talks stalled between the writers guild and the studios and streamers. And then it was like, no, it's your turn to, to counter. No, it's our turn to counter. No, you know, you know, and then finally enough showrunners got involved and said, Hey, things are very dire out here. And Chris Kaiser picked up the phone, called Bob Iger, spoke to for 90 minutes. Iger got Sorandos. All of a sudden we know we have the four CEOs back in the room, in the negotiating room, Five days later, there's a deal with the WGA. That wasn't the case here, but it is a similar playbook. I went out on the picket lines this morning at Disney, and I talked to a WGA negotiating committee member who, who basically said the exact same thing, that this is a move that we have seen before, that this might just be part of the tactics that that the studios and streamers are trying to do. Then, then again, the issue that I'm having here is that with the WGA, there was a group of showrunners that that picked up the phone and called Chris Kaiser, who's been on the show three different times to talk about the, the writer's strike, the co-chair of the negotiating committee. And he was able to, to kind of thread the line between the guild and the, and the four executives and bring everyone back to the table because there was a need on both sides to get back into production. Who's doing that for the actors? That's my question. So far as I can tell, that's not happening. So we've got Fran Drescher in the room, Duncan Crabtree Ireland, who's the chief nego negotiator, who told our colleague Katie Kilkenny that he was blindsided by the studio saying that they weren't going to negotiate Thursday, October 12th. So basically they called out at 5 p.m. after the bargaining session and, and, and basically wiped everything away. So it seems like we're back to square one. Maybe cooler heads will prevail, but but yeah, this is not a good sign, Dan. And and as we said, it had felt as if things were heading in the right direction because, as you talked about, when the the big four executives were sitting down at the table, that felt as if it was the moment at which the writers' strike went from kind of in limbo to moving in the direction of a settlement. And it was two weeks ago that we said that the big four executives were sitting down with the SAG after people. So that either could have felt like it was moving towards the home stretch or not. Uh, definitely. It's been interesting hearing people discussing the, the major sticking point, which appears to be the revenue sharing situation and the amount of revenue sharing for streaming 
kits and kind of the idea that SAG-AFTRA didn't want a parallel to what the Writers Guild settlement tentative agreement, not tentative anymore. It's now, you know, 99% approved. So approved. Uh, so yeah, interesting, interesting seeing how that worked as a, or appears to be a major sticking point. And we'll see where the point of, I don't know, compromise ends up being, uh, yeah, it's it's definitely bleak because as we've talked many different times, the further you get closer to November, the you get closer to basically a point at which nothing is going <laughs> to nothing is going to happen for a month because of Thanksgiving and then Christmas holidays, so things will be shut down again and then as you keep saying, it gets closer and closer to the possibility that there just won't be a season this year for broadcast, which is yeah. obviously horrible. And, and it's not just broadcast yeah. too. Remember that a lot of those those broadcast shows stream on various platforms the next day. That that constitutes a lot of viewership on those different platforms that all rely on subscribers. So if you're heading into the holiday season and you're sitting here going, well, I, I pay whatever amount per month for Hulu so I can watch Grey's Anatomy on Friday mornings and there's no Grey's Anatomy do you need is that a service that you need to continue to pay for heading into the holidays and times when money is at a premium so money at a premium money is spread too thin i think that's what i meant you know what yeah, i mean yeah you know you can mix mix as many metaphors as you want it's not it's not great but maybe this really just is both sides attempting to put pressure on the other in the hopes of getting to you know, whatever, like if everything else in the deal is all settled and this is the sticking point, maybe this is the pressuring to reach a compromise on the revenue sharing. And maybe once negotiations begin again, things will be positive, but hard to feel optimistic. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Number three. Up third this week, Marvel is hitting reset on the way it makes television. Yeah, really. Dan, I, I, you know, before we really head into this segment, I just need to laugh because we have talked on this show. We've had so many Marvel showrunners that we can't call showrunners that we could say, oh, you're a head writer. But now it's basically this is an admission from Marvel saying, hey, you know, the old school traditional way that TV used to get made. Maybe they were onto something. <laughs> really, you don't say you actually need a showrunner and not just an executive with a head writer. And that you also need dedicated television executives and not just people who are film and television executives who are kind of wearing both hats as if they're the exact same medium and therefore you don't need someone who knows how to do, say, make television. Uh yeah, this this news all came out of a fantastic story by our colleague Boris Kitt, which uh, strongly recommend. And uh, yeah, it sort it's a it's a it's a great story, and it's a great story that kind of underlines and confirms anything that any human being actually watching <laughs> these television shows probably could have guessed. So there are lots of fantastic details on what went very wrong with Secret Invasion. Uh, what is what is your sense of how the story represented what's happening with the Daredevil revival show? That was that was kind of the major hook of the of the show is is that there was this Daredevil revival Disney Plus. They shot episodes, and now they're not necessarily back to square one, but they're definitely back to square two or square three. 
Yeah, they're basically un unraveling part of it because here's what we know is that Marvel shut down production on, on the Daredevil revival. It was picked up for two seasons, 18 episodes, and parted ways with head writers Chris Ord and Matt Corman after they had already penned half of the two season orders, 18. The search is underway for new writers and directors because they also parted ways with all everyone who is lined up to direct episodes. The show that marks the revival of the Netflix series with Charlie Cox at the helm will now be creatively retooled. They'll still use some of the, the procedural stuff and the elements that the previous head writers incorporated into the scripts. But basically, this is, a, like I said, this is an admission that Marvel needs to change the way that it makes television. So included in this great Boris Kit story is that Marvel is going to stop picking up projects straight to series and instead plans on hiring showrunners. That's right. You heard it. Showrunners, which, by the way, is in the new WGA minimum basic agreement to write pilots and show Bibles. Basically, this is Marvel realizing that making shows the way that you make movies doesn't work, Dan. So you, you've watched all of the Marvel fair, I think, right? I have. Have you noticed the, the drop off in quality? Because for me, I think I checked out with Miss Marvel. Uh, um, it's a problem to to necessarily empirically lay that out because WandaVision was the first of the Disney Plus Marvel shows, and it was excellent, or at least it felt excellent, especially in its early episodes. And so it was really easy to kind of look at that and go. Ooh, this is terrific. They've figured something out. But the most confusing part of this to me is that it is not as if Marvel and Disney just started making television. They've obviously had different administrations and different parts of the studio doing it. And so the Disney Plus Marvel shows were supposed to be a different way of doing it. They were supposed to be under Kevin Feige's auspices they were supposed to be more clearly and genuinely hashtag it's all connected than the Jeff Loeb uh versions of the shows and if you want we can talk as much as you want about Marvel's The Inhumans uh which I know is a favorite of yours um <laughs> never forget like, never forget it was apparently just an anniversary for it um but like Marvel again different people but still the studio within a somewhat similar world, they made a hundred plus episodes of Marvel's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., which was an episodic show that showed they were capable of doing that. Again, with an not actual showrunner. With an actual showrunner. The Ooh, exact. I think, actually. I, I think it might have even been more than that. It was a show ran for a long time. Show ran for a long time. But I feel like it. Sh mm -hmm. I don't know. We digress. Yeah. Doesn't anyway. Matter. But then, so, okay, they did that. That showed they knew how to do one thing. Then there were all of the Netflix shows. And. You know, kind of taking a step back, the kind of perception has come, has become that those were not really successful, but I don't think that's really true. I think if you were to actually step back and look, you would go, well, here are the things that were successful about those shows. I think Daredevil for a couple seasons was genuinely successful. I think that the first season of Jessica Jones is fantastic. I think the first season of Luke Cage was tremendous. Like, but obviously there were things that went astray. But 
all of these different steps wherein people were not learning the things that were working versus the things that weren't working and attempting to adapt. And then that they started doing an entirely new model when they went to Disney Plus and they did all of these shows that were designed as these one season things that in at least half of the cases were designed almost exclusively to set up individual characters so that they could appear in movies and people could nod and go, oh, I know that person, rather than as actual television shows. Um, it, it It's not surprising that it didn't wholly work. And I don't think it's been that there has been this cohesive downward slump of the quality. I think if you look at She-Hulk, and She-Hulk was actually used in Boris's story as a positive thing about, about how there was actually a head writer who came in after the fact and was overseeing some of the uh, changes that they were making as part of reshoots. And reshoots are part of the Marvel process. It does not mean anything is wrong. It just means they figure out that things, are, that things aren't necessarily working and they adapt to them. That's the way they do these things but that they had to get into post-production on She-Hulk and have a head writer to realize that you want a coherent, singular, creative voice is baffling. But She-Hulk is, I would say, the closest that any of the Marvel shows have come on Disney Plus to being an episodic television show. And the fact that there was a large group of fans, some for entirely valid reasons and some for not valid reasons, who tore that show to shreds, Again, some without having watched it at all, some on the basis of very superficial things like, oh my God, Megan the Stallion twerking with She-Hulk, it must be an abomination in the eyes of the Lord, uh, violating the the purity of the She-Hulk brand. Uh, that's sarcastic if that somehow didn't come through. Um, but like to me, I, it's the not learning from things or learning from things at strange paces. You look at... Uh, Secret Invasion. That, to me, honestly, is the only total dud from from the Marvel Disney Plus. Like, even uh, the show that I keep calling um, The Falcon and the Snowman, but it's actually Falcon and the Winter Soldier, I guess. Uh, it, it, like, it wasn't successful. That was, that was not a good TV show, but I don't think it was a disastrous TV show. I think it was a show that kind of had creative problems, and that just is the thing that happens on shows like this. It also had things I liked a lot. Secret Invasion is the only one where I look and go, wow, that was something where they made this because they had people under contract and they didn't want to give up the chance to make a TV show with Samuel L. Jackson because why would you give up that chance? But they had no idea of what the show was and what the tone was and what the pacing of the show was. And they wasted a lot of incredibly talented people's time on that show because they didn't have a, a creative through line for it. But otherwise... Even the ones that I don't love, there are things that are interesting. I don't love Loki in season two. God, that's a show with a lot of interesting elements to it, though, with, with a lot of fantastic elements. So I, I don't I don't understand the failure to learn faster from certain very obvious lessons. And at the same time, I hope that no one gets the impression that there's an entire baby that they want to throw out with the bathwater and just start over again. Like a lot of what they've done on these Marvel Disney plus shows have been good. It just comes down to a lack of awareness at all times of what the format is supposed to be for some of these shows, you know, is something really a six episode show is something a six episode show where maybe we'll renew it. That's not a way to tell stories. If you, if something's an ongoing story, 
tell it. Yeah, um, and that's also yeah. something that was in Boris's story too that that they ne don't necessarily want to keep making these things as limited series, but they want to keep doing more of these as ongoing series, which by the way, that's literally what everyone in town is saying. <laughs> and and that's how that's what television is, so that's perfectly fine to want to do that. And all of the sort of backstory things on this Daredevil thing are are odd because you figure, okay, so Daredevil in this incarnation, in the Charlie Cox incarnation, the Netflix series was really dark and really violent and really action-filled. They obviously weren't going to do a Disney Plus show that was that show. On the other hand, they brought the character over to She-Hulk, and people kind of liked those episodes. It was it was funny, but already that was a character who had the suit, who had the persona. You didn't need to reintroduce the character. But Boris's story said that the character didn't get into his suit until the fourth episode or something. Why would anyone have thought that what you needed was that full a reboot? I don't understand that as a, a piece of logic at all. Yeah, it's it's a mystery and it's and also this is happening as if you look it's not as if the most recent run of marvel movies have been universally acclaimed and beloved and whatever i think there are generally kind of creative direction problems at marvel which for five or ten years no one needed to address because every single one of the movies was a blockbuster every single one of the movies was generally well-received, which is not to say the same as everybody thought they were masterpieces, but they made a lot of three-star out of four movies. And if you look at their recent output, I would say they've been making a lot of two-star out of four movies and a couple even one-and-a-half-star out of four movies. And so there's there's a whole approach issue that obviously isn't a you know, it's not company crushing or anything. It's just there's it's it's a moment of growing pains, and there's no reason why it shouldn't be a moment of growing pains for the TV side as well as the film side. They just have to understand TV and film are not the same thing, and they're not made the same way. <laughs> yeah, and making a TV show because it it helps connect and uh, and and serve as a bridge to between two movies is not a good enough reason to make a TV show. Not ideally, no. <laughs> that that does not count as a creative imperative. <laughs> Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Number four. Up fourth. This segment is a little bit like headlines, but it's more like headlines with a trend angle to it. The trend is streamers saving. Wait, no, sorry. Let me try that again. Up next, this is sort of like a headline segment, but it's a headline segment with a coherent and cohesive uh, trend through line. Streamers saving broadcast fare like Lucifer. Well, that was in the past. Now the present is. Streamers saving shows made by streamers? Question mark, exclamation mark, question mark. What's new, Leslie? Yeah, that's right, Dan. It, look, this isn't the first time that's happened, but it is becoming more commonplace. This week, Netflix rescued Star Trek Prodigy from Paramount Plus, and Roku picked up the Spiderwick Chronicles after Disney Plus dropped it. So obviously these are two 
very unique examples, right? Star Trek Prodigy is an animated kids show owned fully by CBS Studios, obviously part of the big Star Trek franchise that was part of Paramount Plus or that remains the backbone of Paramount Plus produced by executive uh, from executive producer Alex Kurtzman. That one was, I think, two thirds of the way done with production when Paramount Plus dropped it in exchange for a tax write off. So that was at the same time that they canceled Grease, Rise of the Pink Ladies, and The Game. And there was another unscripted show in that batch, and among others. Roku, meanwhile, picked up Spiderwick Chronicles. That was completely done after Disney Plus dropped it again for a, for a tax write off. And the difference here is Spiderwick Chronicles is produced by Paramount Television Studios, and it was a co-production with Disney's 20th TV, so they still kind of own part of it. Prodigy is fully owned. But basically, what you're seeing here is this is an example of the walls from the walled garden coming down. So think of it this way. When HBO licensed Six Feet Under and Insecure, two of its signature scripted originals, those went to Netflix. That was the beginning of this trend. And that's obviously not the same as a streamer saving a canceled show, but that's a licensing deal. This is something else where Netflix is saying, okay, well, you're already most of the way done with this. It's a low risk for us. With Star Trek, it's a way to get our foot in the door with this franchise. Maybe they have the recent movies on their, you know, on their service too. And they have some kind of numbers that, that show animated kids shows do well or anything Star Trek does well for them, whatever that the case. Roku, we know, is in the is in, in the practice of picking up things that have been dropped by others. They picked up the entire Quibi library, among Quibi. other things. Bye bye. Um, but basically, it's it, this is an example of saying we have this product. It's we've already spent a lot of money on it. You can get it in the at the bargain basement level because we already got a tax write off on it. So now we're just trying to see part. You know, not not the, the streaming service, but the studio side can now profit from the show that that the other hand of it dropped. So essentially it's more of the same where you're seeing maybe a bigger platform can have success with this show that didn't necessarily work on its former platform with Spiderwick Chronicles. It obviously didn't get a chance to air at all on Disney plus, but that's Disney plus saying it doesn't really fit with us with what, what we want this service to be and, or they're just looking to, to rip the bandaid off and, and make some money back. So this is not a new trend. I mentioned that, but we also saw this a couple of months ago when, or last year, I can't remember what is time, when Netflix picked up season three of Girls 5 Eva, the, the star-studded peacock comedy that ran for two seasons, got great critical reviews, couldn't find a home because Peacock wasn't a service that people were going to for comedy, despite having library rights to The Office, among other things, as 30 Rock, Saturday Night Live. So again, this is now becoming the latest example of how the streaming landscape is evolving. So five years ago, you never would have seen a show that was made exclusively for one streaming service wind up on a rival. That never would have happened. Think of it you know, back to when Kevin Riley stood at the TCA stage and when he was asked about the future of Friends on Netflix, he said, maybe that's not something that we want to license out. Maybe that's something we want for our own service. That's the idea is you're creating these these original shows to entice subscribers to pay and stay on your platform. And now they're saying, okay, well, Star Trek Prodigy didn't work. The show means a lot to Alex Kurtzman. So we're going to try and sell it and find a new home because we've already invested all of the money in getting season two made. 
And so Netflix can step up and say, okay, we'll take that. And if it works, maybe they renew it for season three and they continue to license it from CBS Studios. But this is a practice that you never would have seen a few years ago. So anyway, this is this is where we are. And it's and it's an interesting point to me because it's an example of saying, all right, we know no one's watching this, but we can still find a way to monetize it, even if we are helping our competitor, because ultimately it's helping our bottom line. The one that makes no sense to me of these is the is the Star Trek Prodigy thing, just because of how much effort Paramount Plus has put into making itself the hub for all of this Star Trek programming. I mean, that's that's where it lives. And so to tell this one orphaned show to kind of go off and wander on its own and find a new family uh, as they're still making 17 different Star Trek shows and kind of putting up these long lists of tiles on the homepage. If you like Star Trek, watch all of our Star Trek shows. That is the one that confuses me. What, what having this one orphan Star Trek show on a different network means is confusing. I like, I understand money is the simple answer and there's money in it. And also if you look at the Netflix, uh, I don't know. I feel like Netflix has been pushing really aggressively, extra aggressively into animation lately i think they've been it feels like they've been pushing much more aggressively into adult animation which this is not but maybe netflix just figures that at some point an awful lot of the audience coming to netflix is coming for animated shows and so yeah that that is the one that confuses me as to what's happening with spider wick chronicles obviously best-selling book series the adapted into a movie that wasn't as successful maybe it was gonna be more successful as a tv series you know disney's also trying it with uh, the percy jackson series so you know which had the same model of hugely successful book less successful movie maybe it's a tv show uh so yeah i don't i, I don't know what that show could have been that it wouldn't have been on the disney plus brand but just just say money again and we can leave it at that money Number five. As usual, we wrap things up with the Critics Corner. Among this week's major new launches, Frasier returns, this time on Paramount+. Plus. Netflix has The Fall of the House of Usher, and Apple debuts Lessons in Chemistry. Dan, those are the big three this week, but what else do you got? There's a lot of stuff premiering this week. It's, it's really, there's a lot of stuff this week, and that's even before I decided for some reason to get confused on when Big Mouth Season 7 was premiering and I watched Big Mouth Season 7. Well, it's actually premiering next week, so I'll talk about Big Mouth Season 7 next week. Um, yeah, so, okay. So you mentioned the the big three, such as it is, are, are Frasier, Lessons in Chemistry, and The Fall of the House of Usher. So I will get to those with, with much longer reviews in the second half of this segment. I'm going to try running through things a handful of shows that are smaller, but still notable to, I mean, look, I'm sure their mothers love all of these shows. So I don't want to, I don't want to ignore these shows um, in, in sort of faster form. Some of them have already premiered. For example, uh, Big Vape, The Rise and Fall of Jewel, a uh, four-part Netflix documentary series from very, very prolific TV director, RJ Cutler. Uh I, I watched it and was actually interested by it. I, it's not necessarily a thing that I have a, a deep and abiding passion for. I can say with absolute clarity that I have never smoked a jewel. Um, I'm sure they're awesome. 
I hear they have lots of fun flavors and that the kids love them, which is exactly what the problem of the product was and is also what the documentary is about. Yeah, uh, I thought, I've, I've I, never smoked a, a jewel either. Well, okay, here's, and I here's quit, the- I quit using vape, vape pens because it, you can hear in early episodes of the podcast that it was kind of messing up with my voice. Is that true? Yeah. <laughs> I hadn't realized when, that I was- I remember when we, were, when we used to record in person still in, the, in, in uh, our old boss's office. I do. And every, you know, maybe toward the end of the episode, my voice would just kind of start going out or I'd start coughing or whatever. That was from bad vape pens. Huh. I had not realized that that was yeah. the origin of that. Um, that was the origin of that. So anyway, you should definitely then watch Big Vape, The Rise and Fall of Jewel. It's it it's just a it's a fairly smartly made, fairly pragmatic explanation of a product that started off with a very high aspiration, with the aspiration being basically to kill off big tobacco and to get billions of people in the world off of cigarettes and instead became a product that was uh, intentionally or un- unintentionally wildly irresistible to children uh, and horrible, horrible things happened as a result. So I, I, th- I thought it was interesting. So I, I liked Big Vapor as and Fall of Jewels somewhat. Did it need to be a four hour documentary? Could I have just watched a 90 minute documentary and been perfectly edified by that? Yes. Good God. I did not need all four hours, but I, I kind of needed it enough. So uh, that would be Big Vape, which is currently on Netflix. Um, premiering on Friday is Peacock's John Carpenter's Suburban Screams, which is a six-part anthology, uh, kind of a documentary reenactment, hybrid-y type thing. The principle, guiding principle is sort of, here are stories that take place, well, take place in the suburbs, but it's not really clear what they think a suburb is or what kind of story they think they want to tell. It's, it's basically Peacock's ripoff of unsolved mysteries, uh, except that they have John Carpenter involved. And if it's October and spooky season, having John Carpenter involved is going to get some attention. Uh, John Carpenter even directed one episode. It's the first thing he's directed since 2010's The Ward, and that was not a very good movie. So some people are like, ooh, this is a a chance for John Carpenter to get a better, more recent credit on his resume. And unfortunately, it's not better. Um, it's, It's... if it didn't have John Carpenter's name on it, there is no chance that anyone would pay any attention at all to Suburban Screams. It would not get reviewed. It does have John Carpenter's name on it. And let me tell you, that is not enough of a reason to watch it. Uh, fortunately, if you are a John Carpenter completist, the episodes are all standalone. So you can just watch his episode. I believe it's called Prank Caller. It's about a woman who has a, uh, a crazy stalker. And that's about all there is. Uh, she's from... Long Island, which does have suburbs, I guess. So kind of counts. Nothing here is scary. Nothing here is well-made. It was all shot outside of Prague and it, none of it looks, you know, so the point of a suburb is that it's specifically suburban to individual places and nothing looks like it's related to any city. It's all basically suburban Prague. It, It looks really cheap really shoddy it's cast entirely with basically the actors they had available in london or wherever that they could basically put on a put on a plane or a bus or whatever and get to Prague to shoot badly written reenactments it's i mean i'll i'll just go so far as to say it's it's dismal and uh 
the John Carpenter episode might be the best of them, but not by so much that it's really worth anything. Uh, that premieres Friday on Peacock, whatever. Uh, remember, these are the ones I'm doing quickly before I get to the real reviews. Uh, Rick and Morty's back on Sunday. Uh, new stars after the kerfuffle scandal, etc., involving the exit of Justin Roiland from the show. Uh, you can come back to The Hollywood Reporter on Sunday night after the show because Leslie is going to have a fantastic conversation with the show's creative team about the new voices. Yay! But not uh, the new voices because in case you haven't heard, there's still a performer strike. There will be no new voices on the interview with Leslie. Now, as for the new voices and as for the new episodes, they're fine. They're sort of second tier Rick and Morty episodes. I would not call either of the first two episodes back uh, sort of Rick and Morty at its peak. Uh, The major reason why people will tune in, other obviously than being huge fans of Rick and Morty, is to hear how Rick and Morty sound different in these new incarnations without Justin Roiland as the voices. The simple version is they don't. If you hadn't been told, you would think it was still the same two voices. And some people were like, ah, I can tell the difference. I can, the, the burps are different and somewhat different in the timbre of their voices. The main characters on The Simpsons have been voiced by the same people for 35 years. If you go back to season one and listen to what Dan Castellaneta or Yardley Smith sound like in season one and listen to what they sound like now, they sound a lot the same. Not actually so much Homer from the early episodes, but anyway, but they sound a little bit different. That's just what happens over the passing of time. If I just told you that these were the characters the way they sound now, because I don't know, like like Leslie with her vape pen. If I were to have told you that basically the voices of the voice actors matured or changed or whatever, very, very, very slightly due to the normal passage of time, you would have no idea it was a different person. That is basically that. And premiering next week, American Buffalo, new documentary from Ken Burns. Uh, it's somewhat about the literal American Buffalo. It's to be clear, it is the American Buffalo or the American Buffalo, depending on how you want to pronounce that. So it's not a documentary about the David Mamet play. It's about the actual literal Buffalo, which used to roam the plains in millions. And then white people came and killed them all. Uh, And so the first half is kind of, and this is a four hour documentary and a little bit like, Big Vape, Rise and Fall of Jewel. Did it need to be a four-hour documentary? No, it did not. Uh, Did it come closer to needing to be one? Maybe. Ken Burns likes to tell stories. It's what he does. Uh, To me, the first episode kind of felt as if it was using the American Buffalo as a opportunity to tell a very, very limited and cursory history of the indigenous peoples of the United States and what happened when the settlers came in manifest destiny, which feels like it's a much bigger story than this. And so it feels a little thin, but the second episode is about the very strange coalition of forces, which banded together sometimes intentionally, sometimes separated by decades, but still connected loosely to, to bring back the American Buffalo to some degree, to bring it back from the point of near extinction. I thought the second episode was really, really good. I thought it had a lot of interesting characters who I didn't know anything at all about uh, the circumstances of how these people with very different and conflicted interests uh, basically decided that the American Buffalo was a thing that they wanted to save. I thought that was actually really interesting. So, I liked the second episode of American Buffalo a lot more than the first. 
and that's premiering on PBS next week. And you can go back and listen to our interview with Ken Burns tied to baseball and Hemingway. That would be episode 114 from April 2nd, 2021. That was a good chat. Always good to chat with Ken Burns. So, okay, now let's get to the big ones. Let's start with Frasier because, I don't know, got to start with something. (laughs) People will, of course... uh, know the character of Fraser Crane, the beloved and quirky uh, psychiatrist played by Kelsey Grammer from his um, appearance on the NBC classic Wings. Um, The character also made guest appearances on Cheers and on the TV show Fraser, but mostly people know the character from Wings, I believe. Uh, Anyway, the it's, it's brought back and it's brought back Back to Boston, which mostly means a lot of references, but not actually any connection whatsoever with Cheers. Somewhat disappointing. Basically, any time the show references either Cheers or uh, Frasier, it's really clunky and clumsy. Uh, so, okay. So the new show, it was, it's it's on Paramount Plus, and it was adapted or brought back by Chris Harris and uh, Joe Cristalli. And it has Kelsey Grammer. That is that is who and what it has from the original series. It does not have most of the other people. It has lots of references to lots of the other people, to the various characters played by the late, great John Mahoney, the still very active and great David Hyde Pierce, etc., etc. And the premise is that Frazier... <sighs> After the death of his father, Fraser comes back to Boston to try to reconcile with his estranged son, played by Jack Cutford, Cutmore Scott. Uh, his Isn't that son- Murphy Brown's kid? Uh, no. No, different. That was the guy from Limitless. Yes, right? that was Jake, Jake McDermott. McDormand. Sorry. Yes, uh, different people. Uh, I, I think of him as uh, as Greek star Jake McDormand, but that's, you know, anyone's got to think of him however they want. Uh, No, Jack Cutmore-Smith is from the Fox Magician Procedural uh, Deception. This was, this was a a show. I I promise it existed. He, he did magic and solved crimes because that's what you do. Uh, And anyway, the, the character's gimmick is that he dropped out of Harvard and became a firefighter and his father still makes fun of him and, stuff but now he wants to reconcile having dealt with the death of his own father etc and it's supposed to be just a limited visit but instead the uh head of the psychiatry or psychology department at harvard offers him a job because he's still a celebrity and so he decides to stay in boston and stuff uh so basically none of the characters from the original series followed because the series has moved to Boston and yet all of the new characters have resemblances to the original characters so I mean of course you you have Freddie Frazier's son but you also have uh David Crane played by Anders Keith uh who is Niles and Daphne's son and is a lot like them and you know, structurally, it's it's kind of similar to to Frasier, kind of the intertitles between scenes and heavy on farce, heavy on on semi sophisticated puns, heavy on kind of Frasierian elitism, etc. 
some of our critical colleagues, including BFF of the Five, Alan Seppenwall, really, really disliked the revival. Other people, uh, like Friend of the Five, Joe Adalian, quite liked Frasier. I-, I didn't hate it. It's mostly just kind of bland. Like at times, I, I would say that it probably is better than your average kind of run-of-the-mill sort of vintage NBC or CBS style multicam. And then for large stretches, it doesn't feel like that at all. It occasionally takes advantage of the extra running time of streaming to have moments that are more serious and sentimental, but they're very rarely convincing. The The primary thing that the show has going for it on the most basic level is that Kelsey Grammer is very, very good in this character, and he continues to be. He treats the dialogue and the situations as if they were vintage Frasier, vintage Cheers, vintage Wings, uh, even if they aren't. And so there's no coasting. There's no resting on laurels from Kelsey Grammer. And, and so you give him credit for that. And he occasionally makes things funny. The, 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 the primary problems for me are twofold. The first are that the characters from Frasier, if you take them on an empirical level, are almost all insufferable to different ways. It was the ways that they were smartly and cleverly written to be insufferable and written with an awareness of their insufferability and written to bond and make fun of each other and all of that within their insufferability that made it so brilliant. But if you actually had to sit down with the characters from Frasier for a dinner party, you would be very annoyed by them in a hurry. But if you don't have the writing and the situations and the storylines and the the delicacy of the show, then what you're left with is insufferable characters. And unfortunately, too frequently, the characters here are just insufferable. They, they don't have the cleverness to make it winking and nudging. And it's like, it's not Anders Keith's fault that Niles and Daphne's kid has been written insufferably, but the character is consistently insufferable. The longtime friend and colleague of Fraser Crane, played by uh, Nicholas Lyndhurst, is, is just so unlikable and so unamusing that it's just hard to find any humor in it. The biggest problem, though, finally, is that in order for a show like this to work, it has to really and truly basically be an equal two-hander. You have to be able to have both Frasier, but also Frasier's son as a wholly autonomous character who could defend and and hold together their own show. And Freddie Crane is not that character. There, there has to be the way in which this generationally works, that Frasier worked because it was the how did this gruff former Seattle cop end up with these two intellectually elitist sons in Niles and Frazier, and how do they interact? That was what it was, but you had to believe they came from each other. Similarly, this has to be, how did the intellectually elite Frazier end up with a son who wanted to drop out of Harvard and become a firefighter? You have to understand the voice of that character as an autonomous thing, and you really don't. It's not, again, it's not Jack Cutmore Scott's fault exactly. I don't think he's really well cast. I don't think he has a an inherent comfort in the multicam form and with the kind of 
verbality or verbalism or whatever of the show, but it's just not a not a carefully enough conceived character. And to me, that's where the show falls apart. If it were really and truly an effective two-hander between those characters, I would like it a lot more. But I didn't hate it. There's an off chance it could improve and get better. So, Frasier. <laughs> Fall of House of Usher is Mike Flanagan's latest Netflix limited series. Several have involved the word house in the title. Several have involved the word haunting in the title. This one is based on a bunch of works by Edgar Allan Poe. So Fall of the House Usher is one of them. But basically, if you have a, I don't want to say if you have a baseline knowledge of Edgar Allan Poe, because then the answer is probably that you've read The Raven, you've read Lenore, you've read House of Usher, and maybe one other extended short story. Maybe you read The Mask of the Red Death, maybe you read Rue Morgue, maybe you read Cast of Amontillado, For the Love of God, Montresor, etc. That's probably basic. There's more to it than that, but it's still not It's still not an advanced course in Edgar Allan Poe. It's kind of intermediate Poe. But the premise basically really and truly is, is just dope sick or painkiller, because the Usher family in this case has been conceived of as a pharmaceutical family whose money came from an opiate, which they marketed as being non-addictive, but actually turned out to be addictive and has led to hundreds of thousands of deaths. Do you, do you see how this uh, maybe has a superficial similarity to the Sacklers? And by superficial, I mean, that's what it is. And basically the problem, and I said this in my review, with something like painkiller or dope sick is that the reckoning that the Sackler family has faced has been primarily in the form of bankruptcies and class action suits. Mike Flanagan says, what if each of the Sacklers could die in horrific fashion because some sort of supernatural creature was determined to bring the family down? And so there's the satisfaction in that. And Look, this is once again Mike Flanagan working with his spectacular ensemble that he's developed over the years. So people like Carla Gugino, Henry Thomas, Kate Siegel, Rahul Kohli, lots of people who have been in only one or two things, uh, Tania Miller, Samantha Sloyan, Zach Guilford, and then a few kind of new or newer people. Bruce Greenwood was in... Uh, Flanagan's adaptation of Gerald's Game with Carla Gugino, but here he stepped in for Frank Langella. I think it's a was it was a stroke of luck for the show. I think Bruce Greenwood is fantastic. Uh, Mary McDonald's fantastic. Lots of uh, Mark Hamill is probably the newest, biggest name of the new people. He plays basically the family fixer who does all sorts of shady and nefarious things. It's a great hammy performance by Mark Hamill. To me, because it kind of becomes a revenge murder of the week structure, I didn't think it had really the emotional depth that Haunting of Hill House, that Bly Manor, uh, that um, that Midnight Mass had finally in its second half. And so it didn't maybe hit as deep or hit as hard as those shows, but it's significantly gorier. It's often funnier. I think that there's a there's a Grand Guignol uh, style of comedic bloody violence that the show has that I think is a, a lot of fun. 
it, it becomes repetitive because again, it's a murder of the week structure and none of this is a spoiler. The kids all die. It's in the first five minutes of the show. You go through a bunch of headlines saying that the kids all die. So, you know, it's coming, you know, they're going to die. You're just waiting to go, hoo, hoo, how, how are they going to get killed off this time? But I, I enjoy, I enjoyed watching it. I, it's again, it is not the best of the Mike Flanagan shows, but it is absolutely of a piece with them. It has some of the same themes, some of the same moodiness. I think if you are a a Poe fan, you will enjoy it. And a lot of the time you'll be going, oh, I get that reference. And you'll probably be really insufferable, especially if you watch with someone who's less of a fan. You know, it, it adds an extra level. It's kind of the interlocking of the storylines sometimes is very, very storylines within the Poe universe, incidentally. It's sometimes very convincing. Sometimes it's very ridiculous. The way that they bring in the Rue Morgue, for example, is is kind of comical. <laughs> the way that they bring in some of the elements of the Raven, though, are, are are just kind of funny and clever, where you can imagine them going, ah, here's here's a way to bring in this reference. I appreciated it. I generally liked this. I didn't love it, but if part of what represents October to you is a Mike Flanagan series, it's got that. Last and not least, because Frasier would be the least of this group, or Suburban Screams would be the last, the least if we're going with all of these shows. Uh, Lessons in Chemistry is based on the wildly popular best-selling novel by uh, Bonnie Garmus, and it is adapted by Lee Eisenberg, whose credits include The Office, but also Jury Duty. So he's currently one of the nominated producers of a of an outstanding comedy series Emmy nominee. Uh, so you know, excellent. Um, And it's a solid piece of adaptation in that it basically lands a lot of the things that are successful about the book and doesn't really make any missteps that are big missteps. What it does is it, what's unable to do is solve the fact that at least to my mind, the last third of the book is a mess. And similarly, the last, I would say third of the series is a mess. But okay, so the plot for people who don't know, the main character is Elizabeth Zott, played by Brie Larson. Uh, She's introduced to us as basically a TV cooking host in the late 1950s who views herself as a chemistry professor who also hosts a cooking show. This is partially because she's a chemist. And it's grounded in the love story between her character and a more famous character played by Lewis Pullman. Her character is constantly being held back by sexism of the period. His character is held back by his feelings of inadequacy from his lack of paternal figures. They they find a, an unusual and unconventional marriage uh, in a time in which people living in sin aren't necessarily... Uh, embraced by mainstream society but it's still a very sweet love story but it's also a tv show but or a tv show and by tv show i mean a show about tv it's also a food show it's also a kind of so it's a little bit like julia meets i don't know heaven knows what and then in, in the book there's a neighbor across the street who's just constantly hanging out with the main character and has no particular characterization other than that she wants to support Elizabeth Zott. Here, the story has been transposed to a predominantly black neighborhood in Los Angeles. That's where they live. And so the neighbor character is now a uh, a black legal aid 
representative who is trying to stop a freeway from going through their neighborhood. It's a little clumsy. On the other hand, it gives that character a storyline. The, the primary thing that this show and the book have going for them is that the main relationship between Elizabeth and Calvin is an interesting and different kind of relationship. And the main character played by Brie Larson is just a good character. And Brie Larson is wonderful here. She, she gets to the root of what is prickly and socially awkward about her character, but also what it is that the character understands about television, about feminism, about her moment in time. I, I think it does a very good job with that. And I think that people will like the chemistry with Brie Larson and Lewis Pullman. I think that will keep people going. I think the second half of the show is significantly tougher to make sense of. I think that the show isn't really able to capture all of the perspectives that the book has. And by that, I mean that the book spends a long time with uh, the family dog narrating. And there's a little bit of that in the series, but it doesn't do it consistently. And it kind of loses the thread there. And then unfortunately, or fortunately, or whatever, I mean, if you love the book, you're going to be glad that they didn't touch the ending. If you were frustrated by the last third of the book, you'll be annoyed. They didn't fix the ending. They didn't fix the ending. A lot of the things that end the book that feel really abrupt and borderline silly feel really abrupt and borderline silly here. But Brie Larson is terrific, and it's worth watching for her, for that. It's a generally likable show. Oh, dear Lord, I need to stop talking. Of these shows, um, probably the best of the group really is The Fall of the House of Usher, but I liked Lessons in Chemistry a lot. Frasier, I didn't think it was as awful as some people did. It's just not, unfortunately, very good, and it's definitely not necessary. Yeah, other stuff. But before we sign off this Critics Corner, I would like to remove my critic hat. I would like to pass it to you through our Zoom. I want to hear how you too was at the sphere, Leslie. How was that concert? Oh God. Um, <laughs> let me just say that I absolutely love you two that like, I love you, Dan. I love you too. And I love the band. And I've <laughs> this, seen them this live. This all became very confusing, yeah. Leslie. <laughs> <laughs> it's a love fest. I've seen them live maybe four or five times now. And the sphere. So there's two things that I want to talk about. The first is the band, you know, Bono, obviously, you know, he's getting up in age, so he's got to save his voice for some of the, you know, hitting the, the, the big notes. And he, he effectively does that. They sound great. You know, the, the substitute drummer really, you know, does his, his best to, you know, to fill in for Larry. And I thought he, you know, I didn't really miss Larry, although he's one of my favorite parts of this band, but they sounded great. Octong Baby to me is their best album. So it was awesome getting to see them do some some of my favorite songs from that, including one. And they did the tour debut of Pride and Where the Streets Have No Name. And both of those were really good. They, they re rearranged some, some of the stuff. They did some little samples of some hit songs here and there that weren't part of their library. It was just, it was a really, really good show. The Sphere, however... I just felt like the first third of the show, it was like you're when you get in there, it's like being inside the Death Star. You know, it's it, it's it's so massive. And it, it just I'm very glad I my our seats were in section 303. We were 15 rows into that section. And there was still the, the 400s above us. 
I'm guessing that if you're sitting in the 400s, it's gonna you're gonna feel the experience of vertigo that you have when you sit in the very very top deck at Dodger Stadium for whatever weird cross section of people I'm talking to right now. But the higher up you go, the more you're gonna be acutely aware of how disgusting you feel. Um, I was okay um, at the show. I had some friends, I had a friend who was struggling a little bit, um, but. The show starts and there's, you know, the, they use the the background and look, U2 has always embraced technology in their live shows. And the same is true here. But the difference is, is that it just felt like they didn't fully know what to do with this venue's capabilities because the entire backdrop behind them going all the way up to the ceiling is a giant screen, except for some parts in the back, which I'm guessing are speakers. The entire venue can, can turn into whatever you want to turn it into. You know, I thought the venue was the coolest part when it showed when it when it actually showed water because you couldn't tell that it wasn't water it was so visually stunning but the first the first third of the show they found ways to use it that were interesting the last third of the show the same some of the visuals were just absolutely stunning and you're just like this is it's like a giant instagram installation like they want you to take selfies they want you to take video you know it, it's remarkable but then the middle third of the third of the show they just really didn't know what to do with it and it was just blank or dark you know, and the setup of the stage, you know, when you look down on it, it's supposed to look like a turntable, which is so cool. Like as, as someone who collects vinyl, it's really nice to see. And it's like Brian, you know, design the whole set It's really neat, but you can't see the band like from where our seats were. And, and I paid 250 bucks a ticket for these. And the, you're looking at Bono and he's the size of an ant and there's no camera on him and there's no projection to, so that you can look at the screen to actually see them for two thirds of the show. And that to me was a challenge, you know, because it's like you want to be able to see them, but you also don't want to watch the show as you're zooming through your cell phone and, and seeing Bono completely and totally pixelated because you're zoomed in as far as you can go. You know what I'm saying? But they sounded great. Um, they just need to figure out what they're going to do with the sphere. And then the sphere has some some things to work out in terms of logistics. Getting in was a joke. Getting out was nuts. It was just a lot. But uh, if you have the bandwidth and you're a fan of the band, it's de definitely a sight to see. And they still sound great. Excellent. I probably will not see it, but it does sound like an experience. I mean, considering that everyone's doing concert movies right now, I, it's just a matter of time, I, I think. You know, because you, the elements are here, right? One of the biggest bands on the planet, brand new venue that's technologically a marvel. It's right there. Someone's going to do it. It's just a question of who and when. Excellent. For more of Dan's re uh, recommendations and none of mine, be sure to subscribe to the Hollywood Reporter's Now See This newsletter and bookmark THR.com slash TV dash reviews for more. That feels like a good place to wrap things up. Thank you, as always, for listening to TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. Be sure to subscribe on all of your various podcasting platforms. If you like us, rate us. If you really like us, write a little reviewy thing. Those suckers help spread the word of mouth. Come say hi to us on various social media platforms. She's rather consistently at Snoodit with two O's. I'm rather consistently at The Fine Print, F-I-E-N. Let us know what's working, what isn't working, etc. If you have questions, though, for future mailbag segments, and those suckers will return in the future, you can email us at tvstop5 at thr.com. That is tvstop5, the numeral 5, at thr.com. Until next week, Leslie. Until next week, Dan. Dan.